You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, coming up for air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. Hi, everyone. It's been a while since I've been back on the podcast. I've been away doing a lot of work in the field. Today, I'm back, and I am back with Dominique Simon-Levine, the founder and CEO of the Allies in Recovery website. And today, Dominique and I are going to just have a, an open and honest conversation about Module 7, about the fear and obsessive thoughts that we have as family members with loved ones with substance use disorder and battling that fear and that angst and those obsessive thoughts and what works, what doesn't work and how you could possibly overcome it. So I'd like to just kind of get right into a conversation with Dominique. I don't know if you've been following on on the blog, but there's a mom who her daughter has diabetes and of course when she drinks, it's life-threatening. I mean, it's no different than any other drug, but it's really frightening. And she's feeling like it's better if she's home. It's better where she can keep an eye on her. It's better for her peace of mind that her daughter stay home. It feels like that's that's the crux of it. It's always the crux of it. The danger versus the protection and policing. You know, I find it, I find that this topic really interesting because this is one of the things that for, uh, I have a friend that her son was diagnosed with diabetes and in high school and then he went away to college and he wasn't taking care of his diabetes, right? was drinking, he wasn't eating right. And one night when he was in college, he went out drinking and, you know, he, he wasn't eating right. He started to have a really bad, um, I don't know what they call it, but where he couldn't, he didn't know where he was. He was walking home from a party. He couldn't find his dorm. He was, um, he was confused and he was calling his parents and they were like at a loss for how to help him. Somehow someone found him and they got him to the hospital and he was taken care of. They, they, um, but I find it interesting because to me, it's like, this is exactly like substance use disorder, right? This denial that I have a problem or that, right? It's the, it's the same thing. And he had to learn, he had to learn that he couldn't do that stuff. He couldn't, couldn't be drinking or at least not to that level, right? That he couldn't party like everybody else. And it's, it's just one of those things. I think about it all the time when people talk about substance use disorder and, and it not being 
um, not being a disease or a medical condition. And I'm, or, you know, well, how come they don't wake up? How come they don't get it? And I'm like, well, a lot of, a lot of illnesses people don't get, they don't take care of themselves. You know, they're not medi- uh, uh, they're not compliant with their medicine. You know, I know like asthma, I have asthma. I haven't been compliant with my medicine, right? Because I don't like how it makes me feel. I, it causes other problems it, and it took a long time and actually it took until, so I would never get the flu shot. And, and uh, one, one year I got the flu and I got it so bad. I believe I ended up with like pneumonia and, and, but I didn't go to the doctor and I damaged my lungs so much that now I've only got about 60% of my lungs. Right. But that it's just another example of me not taking care of myself like I should. I don't know. I just think about stupid little things like that all the time. Right, right. This young woman um, has already had one dangerous moment where she ended up in intensive care in a diabetic, is it shock or coma? Uh, There's a technical term that the Mm -hmm. mother uses on the, on the, on the blog post question. Um, And, and she's asking the same thing. I don't get it. Why doesn't she see it? Why doesn't she see the problem? And, and, and what you're saying has been borne out in other things I've read that all kinds of chronic diseases exist. And when there's a lifestyle component to it, people are more or less compliant with the lifestyle component, whether it be not eating sugar or taking medication or watching your weight or, you know, what, whatever it takes to be compliant to address in the very best way a chronic illness. As you say, it's no different diabetes, asthma, there are other conditions that make it even more dangerous for the person to abuse substances. But it's got to be seen as a whole. It's got to be seen as I'm, I'm refusing compliance for everything. And there's this very sort of vicious little segment out there that I've, I've run into a couple times. I've read about it where people are saying, um, how many times are we going to save somebody from their overdoses? How many times are we going to give them heart operations to fix the valve that often goes bad with chronic uh, opiate use? You know, I think that the last time I, I, I heard this was coming from um, a conference that was full of medical people. You know, what are we supposed to do? Do we just keep stepping in? Do we keep saving them from themselves. And I said, wow, you know, would you say the same thing if somebody came in in a diabetic coma, you know, or if... um, Heart disease. What about, I'm sorry, heart disease is, is, uh, you know, there's so much of lifestyle choices that contributes to heart disease. And when someone uh, has a heart attack and goes to the emergency room, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars to save him and nobody is looking at that person and going wow you know you didn't exercise like you're supposed to you you know you're still drinking beer during the sunday football game 
you're eating a lot of McDonald's and Burger King, we're not going to treat you anymore. How many times can you come in and have a heart attack? You know, nobody <laughs> does that. Why should I yeah. take your, yeah. Well, I think next time, three heart attacks, that's all you're allowed. Next time, we're just going to let you go. <laughs> because you haven't learned. There are people seriously debating this. Right. There is a serious debate about this. And it is abysmal. It is shameful. Yes. And um, whenever there's something with a huge lifestyle component to it, people are going to struggle with it. And that's, that's as true for substance use disorder as, as any of these other conditions we're talking about. And, you know, all we can do is, is continue to work on teaching and, and supporting the healthy behaviors that get people out of this. I agree. And for this mom... I wrote, you know, you're doing, she's, she's listed a bunch of things that she's doing craft-wise, you know, she's stepping away, she's not fixing big meals, she's leaving her daughter alone, she's asking her not to come home when she's high. I mean, she's doing a lot of good craft stuff, but she's terrified, terrified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's, what do you do with that? I hear what she's saying. I think every family out there that's dealing with this, um, with substance use disorder, are terrified, especially when it's complicated with something like diabetes. And you know that every time that person steps out the door, you just don't know what's going to happen. And you're just sitting on the edge of your seat all night long, or pacing, or waiting, waiting for the police to show up at your house. And I think that, I think that people that have a loved one with that are using things like heroin and opioids are going through the same thing every single day. I, I think it's less when it's alcohol or it's pot, but in this case, when it's alcohol and there's diabetes, you know, you have that added complication and that fear that, that they could at any moment end up either maimed or paralyzed or killing somebody else by accident or end up dead themselves. It's an unbelievable fear. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I've had that. I've, I've experienced that as a parent as well. And I still, on some level, it's hanging over my head all the time. It's there. The only thing I can say about it is that I had to work really hard on myself and it, it, it's not even reflecting. It's really about convincing myself that worrying and uh, giving into this, right? Giving into this constant worry, pacing back, really coming to the conclusion that that doesn't change anything when they are out there. And, and really coming to the conclusion that I need to find some way to soothe myself in the moment until my son gets back home and I can kind of calm down. And it took me years. So it isn't something I would never say, oh, you know, a couple of weeks of deep breathing and meditation. And, you know, it, it, that's just not, it's not going to cover it. But... A long time of really, really believing that, okay, 
you can pace the floor and you can worry. You can stay up all night with this. And I don't even want to call it fear. It's more like, it's like terror is not going to make me healthy so that whatever comes next, I want to be as healthy. I want to be as, uh, have as much sleep as I possibly can. I want to be fed as much as I possibly can in order to be prepared for the next thing that comes through that door. You know, whether it's my son, whether it's the police, you know, whatever it is, I need to be fully prepared. And understanding that this is always going to be a part of my life. Not in the way it was when it first happened. And I'll tell you, being in that awful terror, it it lasts for a long time. And it's this, you know, you're literally, the only explanation I can have is your doggy paddling in the water and your nose is just out, out of the surface to keep you breathing. But I will also say that you can do it. You can, you can get better. You don't expect it to go away completely because I don't think it ever does. I mean, even, even now with, with my son working on his recovery and doing fairly well, it still is this black cloud. It's still in the back of my head, you know, that at, at any moment things could change. I think um, by the time we get there as families too, that, that's another issue. We have desperately been searching for answers and nothing has worked. So we're exhausted, right? We're beat down. And now we have this terror that we have to deal with. I mean, how difficult is that? Lori, does it help at all? In module seven, we talk about uh, the cognitive distortions, right? How our mind has is is got some bad habits, like the negative stuff far outweighing the positive in a disproportionate way, in a way that's not balanced, that's not real or truthful. And the same way we predict, we predict out the worst possible scenarios and we hang on that and we, we distort our feelings and make them even worse because we're convinced, right? We're smart, we're analytical, we've seen it before, it's absolutely possible. It might not be my son who comes through that door next. It might be the police telling me he's dead. You know, so does it work really as a family member to tell yourself, I am distorting my, my thinking. I am thinking the worst. I am overly worrying. In fact, the evidence is in the reverse. My son has always come through that door, you know, so... To what degree can you cognitively calm yourself down? Okay, I love this question. And I can tell you that I did module seven independently and on my own, even though I had watched it not too long ago when my, when my son had had a slip. And I, I did it independently. I did exactly what it, it says. I let the emotion take me over. I just said, okay, go with it right now. You're not going to be able to control this, control these feelings. And just like in module seven, I was like, Laurie, you can't push the feelings down. If you do, you're just physically making yourself sicker and sicker in the moment. So let it take you over. And I did. 
then I started having this internal dialogue and I started, and, and actually it wasn't even completely internal because some of it was external because my husband <laughs> responded to me, but I said, okay, you can spend the rest of tonight up. You can, you know, you can, he's gone. He's out there somewhere. He's not picking up his phone. He's not answering that phone. You can spend the rest of tonight either going to bed and having nightmares and waking up with anxiety and getting absolutely no rest. And I also know when my head hits that pillow, my mind starts, I, I can't control, I can't, right? My mind just starts all these awful things. And then the dreams, the nightmares will set in and, and then I wake up and I was like, okay, so right now you need to take care of yourself. How can you set it up so that you can get as much sleep as possible so that you're ready when he comes through the door or you're ready for whatever comes through the door? Cause it wasn't quite like that. And I had said, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn the television on. I'm going to sleep on the couch. And every time I wake up, cause I know it's inevitable. I'm going to, the TV will already be on. I'm going to put it on something that, I like to watch, but I won't, I, I'll be a little bored and I'll be able to go back to sleep. And so I did this. The other thing that I did was I did have this internal dialogue. I wouldn't be able to say, I haven't gotten to a point where I can come up with the alternative positive. So like what you were saying, where my thoughts go, oh my God, you know, he's using He's got a batch of fentanyl. I just know it. He's not going to make it. I haven't gotten to the point where I can say, well, evidence shows that he comes walking through that door every single time. I haven't, I haven't gotten there probably because I did experience an overdose. I, I, I did see it. But what I was able to convince myself was that, you know, all the worrying all night long, it doesn't help me. It makes me sicker and it doesn't help me deal with whatever is coming. I even went, I, I've even gone so far as to say to myself, okay, if it does, if the worst happens, what's my plan? I'm going to call my doctor right away and I'm going to get myself on something that will help me with depression immediately. I'm going to call my counselor immediately. So, so I've got this, uh, I've got this plan in place and I can tell you, that in, in even having this dialogue of, okay, you know, I, I did, I did go from really negative thinking to changing it to positive thinking in that you could be totally wrong, Laurie, you know, really talking to myself, you know, you could be, it might not happen that way. It might happen that he just walks through the door and so you could have that. I, I wasn't completely convinced, but it, it was a possibility. And I ended up sleeping on the couch doing exactly what I said. I slept on the couch. I did wake up and go back to sleep. And what's the most amazing thing was after doing that, and I've heard of this before where I was, uh, in the past, I've been so confused and things are so jumbled in my head, I can't come up with a solution. 
And all I wanted to do all night long was, you know, I wanted to take pictures of his dog and send them to him and say, don't you want to come home and see Dougie? And, you know, and then I, I started realizing, no, that's me trying to manipulate the situation. That's me trying to make him feel guilty to come and to come home. It took doing this, this taking care of myself in a way that I knew would keep me at my healthiest. And it was weird. I woke up in the morning and I said to myself again, okay, normally what would you do? Normally you would beg and plead for him to come home, right? Normally you would call him 50 million times or text him or, you know, send him pictures of the dog or... And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the complete opposite of that. And I was like, okay, so what is the opposite of that? The opposite of that is simply telling him I love him, simply letting him know, I know you're out there doing stuff, so don't, don't even deny it, right? There's no way you can deny it. Your father and I are just waiting for you to come home, and that's it. And so I sent him a message, and my message was, Hey, bud, uh, I love you very much. I know I can't change what's happened, but if you could just call my phone, say hi so I know it's you, and hang up just so that I know you're safe. That's all I'm asking for. And it was amazing. It, It was the right thing to do because within 10 minutes, he was texting, he was calling, he was... I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I just said, just, just come home. That that's just come home and we'll figure out what the next steps are. That's it. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. So it it did work and and it's weird because as you know, I run our peer-led mutual aid groups in Rhode Island and we watch the craft modules And we were doing module seven. We were just starting module seven. And my next meeting we went to, we watched module seven. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I did. And it worked. (laughs) That's exactly what I did. You know, and I was able to share it with everybody. I was like, oh my God, it works. It works, guys. You know, and... I'm not saying you're going to be good at it the first time you do module seven or that you'll even get it. Does that make sense that you'll understand it? Yes. But this is where I think if you can fake it till you make it, and we've talked about that saying in the past on this podcast, but if you fake it, it, it'll come to you. 
right? And it took me a long time. I mean, we're talking years of me practicing, but not really understanding what I was doing. Yes, that's you know? amazing. And, and that's, that's amazing. The, well, and that's that's the thing. It's that is the biggest one of the biggest barriers I think for for families. That's that sheer terror. And how do you deal that with terror that? That makes you behave in a way that's not helpful to your loved one. Sure, right. I'd rather you just stay on the couch, never move again. As Annie said in a recent post, you know, don't ever leave my sight. <laughs> yep. If you could just never leave my sight, I will be okay. And that's simply not possible. But that's what you'd like to say to them. It's the weirdest thing, but the strangest thing is after Tommy uh, overdosed the first time, I went to a Naranon meeting. I'll never forget this. In this Naranon meeting, I think it was my very first one. And I was just, I could not function. And I said that, I said that to them, if I could, if I could just chain him to his room and take care of, I, I would do it. I, I would absolutely do it. And I know that I can't, but I had honestly considered it. That I, I know that sounds crazy, but I thought, I really thought, you know, I could make this a reality. I could really do it. I'm going to cry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I remember feeling that way and knowing it was not. It was, of course, it was ridiculous uh, that I could think that way. Uh, you think ridiculous things with this disease, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I have worked in this field long enough to hear stories of families, one in particular who did, who did chain their young adult son to a tree. And um, yeah, you know, that this was their solution. And I understood, I understood the behavior. I understood why they did that. I also understand that it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't, you know, but it's also, it's, I understand how someone could do it because you're just desperate. You're just desperate um, to save them. I've often thought, I've often thought totally ridiculous things like, you know, maybe I could find an island that's not inhabited and I would bring him there. <laughs> yes, I have thought the same thing for my beagle. <laughs> Uh, you know, but of, of course, totally ridiculous. And I mean, I have also thought about, and I told my son this one time, I told him that if a doctor came to me and said, I can make your son happy for the rest of his life, I can, I can cure him of this, you know, both the, the depression, the anxiety, and the substance use disorder, but I need to take a hacksaw and hack your right arm off. Uh, and you can't have any anesthesia while you do it. I would stand there and say, hack my right arm off and do it. And I know that there are a lot of families out there that know exactly have thought similar things. That, yeah, I, I, I would have done it. I would have done it. And, uh, and I've told him that, that I, I would do it. It didn't help. <laughs> what does help, what does help from what you're saying is taking 
physical good care of yourself, trying to get the sleep, making sure you're fed, watching those thoughts as best you can, right? Right. And setting up setting up what craft suggests, which is this is the, the stuff you can do, right? That will be will help resolve the situation is to is is to watch your communication, watch your behavior, watch what you're rewarding, what you're not rewarding, and, and generally create that environment around the person. It, that's in the future. It's not in that moment of terror. I have found that that is the only answer. That is the, it's the only answer. And kind of coming to this idea of, and I don't know who said it, I want to go and look it up, but this, um, this idea of radical acceptance I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Um, yes, it's well. Radical acceptance is Buddhist Buddhist thought. Pema Chodron is a good American Buddhist nun who's very accessible. Pema P E M A Chodron S C H O D R O N. I recommend her highly because she's so easy to listen to, and she's got a good sense of humor, and and um, she's very much taken some of this Buddhist thinking and made it. Uh, very American and very easy to understand. Radical acceptance, like, um, and for me, I I actually keep saying that in my own head, this idea of accepting whatever comes, just accepting it, setting up the best environment possible so that my son can be successful, but also that our relationship is good because no matter what happens, ultimately in the end, I will know I've tried everything I possibly could. I will know that my son knows I love him. And I will also know that he tried everything he could. Yes. Right? You know, th- this idea, there, there's a lot of other things too that, that run, run through my head like, I see these things on Facebook all the time, all these ideas that that addiction or substance use disorder, parents that are involved with that experience so much more pain and people don't understand. I do think people don't understand the pain that we're going through, but I also think that the pain that we're going through is no different than the pain that other families feel when they find a loved one with uh, that are diagnosed with other terminal illnesses you know, that we are experiencing the same pain. Um, and in some ways I find comfort in that I am, I am not as different as you think, that I am not isolated or special than other families. So a family that has a child that's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and all they're doing is, is, you know, the, impending doom and all they're doing is running around trying so hard to find any kind of treatment that will help their loved one it's the same right it's the same it's the same and here's the good news substance use disorder is manageable it's resolvable you can live an entire life healthy and happy contributing to your community having a family being joyful and the family has a role in this by creating that immediate environment that is supportive of getting the help, going to treatment, t- 
turning it around. And that's that's the beauty of substance use disorder. There's a huge lifestyle component and you can change the lifestyle. It's not like terminal cancer where there's no drugs that'll fix it. There is a fix here and I have seen it work time and time again and so have you. You've seen it work in your own life. So we have to do what we can. I feel like craft needs to be everywhere because there's like 40% of America, I'm going to get on my, my soapbox, I'm sorry, 40% of Americans that have this, this, this in their family, and there's a, a skill set you need that could help, that may help, that will help, and that will make you feel as though you're taking the right actions and making yourself feel as though I have taken the right actions. I know what I'm doing. It's supported. It's, there's evidence. The science backs it. I am doing what I can. And doing what you can is all you can do. Right. And at some point, you've got to forgive the fact that you, you don't have 100% control over this situation. But don't, just Brenda, don't. I'm on this big kick right now that for, for families, we are not powerless. We are not powerless. We can be empowered. We're only yes. powerless if we don't find the skills and the strategies and the methods that we can use to help communicate with our loved ones, to help reinforce that positive behavior, and to make a change for the better, we can be empowered with skills, strategies, right? So do not render me powerless. I am not powerless. I may be powerless over the disease, but every, every other family or parent is powerless over their children's diseases. Right, terminal cancer. They're they can't. All they can do is try and get their child to the right treatment. Right, right. That it's the same. Right. It's the yeah. same. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Lori. Thank I know you, that's Lori. not what you wanted to cover today. We no, but this worked out fantastic. And so next time, I think that maybe we do cover module three. But also, one thing I'd like to say before we say our goodbyes, if you really like coming up for air and you find that coming up for air is a great podcast for you to be listening to, one way to help support our podcast is to give us a five-star rating. So if any of our listeners out there uh, would like to give us a little bit, a little bit of support, if you could just give us a review and maybe a five-star rating, that would be so helpful. Super. Thank you. Thank you, Lori. Thank Have you, a good Dominique. Sunday. A good you Sunday, too. Everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. If you have a comment or a question or want to share something about your situation, use the comment form on the Allies in Recovery member site. You'll find it at the bottom of the homepage or at the top of the discussion blog. We look forward to hearing from you. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it is available online, or simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Our music, entitled Joie de Vivre, is composed and performed by cellist Eric Corey. Thank you for listening to the Coming Up For Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. Be sure to check the member site regularly for new podcasts.